Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 49 Breath I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic, I'm your DC Films apologist Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, the history, science, and implications behind the super breath powers. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. It's been a while. I love doing the show, so I make these episodes as often as I can, but those opportunities are few and far between lately. It's been so long that I'm a little bit rusty, so I'm going back to my bread and butter, my default mode of thinking, detailed scientific breakdowns. Generally, we focus on the powers as they appear in the films, as opposed to elsewhere in Superman lore. However, there's a long-lasting traditional power from the mythos yet to make an appearance in the cinematic universe, and and that's Super Breath, and its derivative, Cold Breath. We're going to look into the history of these powers, some of the science, and the practical and creative implications. At the beginning of 2015, DC put out a promotional image heralding the Super Flare as the first new power in decades with the tagline, New Year, New Power, listing a number of Superman's traditional powers and the year of comic book incorporation. Well, there are many ways to challenge or argue with that promo, but among them was the omission of Super Breath or Cold Breath. Later, we'll get into some of the reasons why it's sometimes left out, but let's get into the history first. Going by the promo, I didn't have a quote-unquote, official name to call these powers, or a year to start researching with. As far as I know, there isn't a universally accepted name for these powers, and they're often bundled together as the same thing. As an umbrella term, I'm going to call all the powers relating to the force and volume of breath, super breath. And that may or may not include all the powers relating to the temperature and heat effects of that breath, which, for the sake of consistency, I'm going to call cold breath. I know that isn't one of the more popular terms. You can call it freeze breath, arctic breath, ice breath, or whatever. It's all generally the same thing. I pick cold as the most technically accurate, because his breath doesn't always change states of matter, it's rarely tied to a polar geographic region, doesn't always involve ice, etc. Reasonable minds will differ, this isn't a hill to die on, I explain purely for clarity, not staking a position. So going back to the promo, I can understand why there is isn't a year, because depending on what you think the power is or does, it's hard to draw a line in the sand and say, this is where it started. This can be a bit of an anathema for some comic book fans who are used to memorizing first appearance dates and issue numbers to cite to unambiguous feats of power. Fuzzy lines don't fit into neat little trivia tidbits and tend to get lost to time and internet reporting. So trying to find out the first appearance of Super Breath was not easy. At least it wasn't for me. I literally 
really had to go to the library to do research on this and go back to the source material. Part of the problem of tracing back Super Breath is determining whether or if it is something different or separate from Super Strength. If what Superman is doing is just another facet of his strength, is it really its own power? We don't look for the first appearance of the Super Jump or Super Punch as their own powers, but consider them part and parcel of Super Strength. That said, if we're bundling powers, who's bundling controls whether it's a separate power or not? For example, the ability to lift objects is typically bundled with Super Strength, but early on, that would include lifting objects that literally lack the structural integrity to be lifted. That observation or analysis is a scientific or modern one, observed by some modern writers, but we can say with some degree of certainty not something contemplated by early writers. So is that other aspect its own power or just part of strength? The answer is philosophical, subjective, and not clear-cut. I point this out so that you understand why reasonable minds may differ on when different powers debut. Some may go from the scientific logic, others may go by explicit statements in the story, others may go by authorial intent, and so on. However, enough on ambiguity and uncertainties, let's get into some of the early historical feats. The first feat that might be considered Super Breath appears in Action Comics number 20, January 1940. Superman is being attacked by the Ultra Humanite, who first appeared in issue 17 and who Superman killed in issue 19. Once a frail, wheelchair-bound man, now his brain inside the body of a kidnapped movie starlet, Dolores Winters. <laughs> comics. The villain wields a torch as a weapon, and from a few paces away, Superman blows it out with a puff of his breath. And this is a breath and blowing feat, to be sure. But you could argue it could be accomplished by great strength and durability without any additional powers. It's on the edge of what a human could do with normal lung capacity if they had great strength and their lungs could survive the pressure. And indeed, that initially seems to be the intention, since in Action Comics 15 and 34, the durability of Superman's lungs is raised as capable of withstanding any air pressure. However, a quote-unquote proper example of Super Breath would come in Action Comics 37, June 1941. Mayor Garson and his secretary are trapped in an office by a wall of flames. Superman leaps through the window and, quote, a terrific gust of breath from Superman and the flames are extinguished, end quote. This is the first time that Superman exhales more breath than anyone can inhale. At the time, the power is a bit of a daft outlier. Flame and flood were still a fear in the radio show. The flight cartoons running from 1941 to 43 didn't have such power where fire and flame was often an obstacle or threat, and in fact that Superman could be affected by gas. At the same time, he could operate underwater without much issue. It would be another 22 issues of Action Comics before Superman's breath powers were revisited. In Action Comics 59, 1943, Superman plays Fairy Godmother to Cinderella using his powers in place of fairy magic. When it comes to the glass slipper, he heats up glass with friction to shape it. Heat vision is still six years away, and then cools it off with his breath. Four years later, in Action Comics 110, July 1947, another fairy tale related story. Superman blows through Little Boy Blue's horn to knock down the villains. Why the horn is necessary at all, beyond whimsy, is not explained. A few months later, in the pages of Superman, issue 48, we have Superman's first inhalation feat to save a stack of his falling autographs from burning up in a bonfire, he quote, alighting, Superman inhales the flames to extinguish 
vanquish them, end quote. Then he quips to himself, versatile, aren't I? Indeed, his super breath would get crazier and crazier. In the next issue, issue 49, Toy Man tries to escape on his, quote, rocket-powered hobby horse soaring through the clouds. When Superman takes a deep breath and the terrific suction draws Toy Man back to Earth, end quote. Action 117, he moves the clouds to make the perfect Christmas. Action 118 has a cover completely unrelated to its contents, featuring Superman on the cover blowing along a child's ice boat. As if the writers had found a new toy, the breath power was featured in Action Comics 119, 120, 122, and 132. As the 40s came to a close, Superman would make a cyclone in Action 134, launch himself and Lois in a rocket into space using his breath in Superman 57, 1949, and inflate blimps as if they were toy balloons in Superman 59. Cold breath doesn't end enter the picture until the 1950s. But before we explore that history, let me cite two of Superman's most extraordinary pre-crisis super breath feats. In Superman issue 91, August 1954, Superman tries to show an artist a feat worthy of going on a commemorative stamp. At one point, he casually whisks the artist into space, travels faster than light, extinguishes a star, and in the vacuum of space says, quote, how about that? Blowing out a star with my super breath. Quote. The artist isn't impressed, and spoilers, in the end is moved by Superman playing with a little kid, showing that Superman's humble attention is better than his cosmic feats. Another equally casual cosmic feat is in Action Comics 273, February 1961. Subjected to magic sneezing powder, Superman flees the Earth and, quote, My super sneeze is destroying this solar system. Suspecting this might happen, I flew to a long-dead universe where all life vanished eons ago due to a terrible space plague. End quote. And it's incredibly convenient that the dialogue in pre-crisis comics explains everything that's happening so that I don't have to describe the panels. <laughs> From blowing out a torch in 1940 to vaporizing a solar system in 1961, that's a pretty dramatic escalation of power. Things wound down in the Bronze Age and entering into the Modern Age. The last pre-crisis use of freeze breath that I could find was in Action 573 from 1985. And the last example of super breath was in 1986, issue 580. In some recent incarnations, writers and animators have tried to scale down some of Superman's less plausible superpowers in an effort to make the character more science-friendly. In the 80s, we did a huge revamp on Superman from the ground up. A writer named John Byrne came along and revamp Superman, and at that point, he was really seriously powered down. We wanted him to really be able to break a sweat. However, post-crisis, Super Breath, at least the inhalation part, was back almost immediately. Superman was rebooted in the six-part Man of Steel miniseries, and part three is best known for the team-up with Batman against Magpie. But it's also the first example of a post-crisis Super Breath power. Magpie drops an acidic gas to make her getaway, forcing Superman to inhale all the gas and fly into space to release it. Incidentally, Superman credits the frigid vacuum of space as freezing and neutralizing the gas, which implies that he did not have the ability to chill the gas on his own yet. A similar poison gas incident happens in the Batman story, A Death in the Family. Super Breath was the exception, rather than the rule, with appearances very far and few between for 15 years, a decade and a half. 
In 2000, Jeff Loeb took over the Superman title, starting with issue 151. Loeb entered his teens during the heyday of Superman's Silver Age in the 70s, and Loeb was quick to reintroduce elements like Crypto, Supergirl, and Cold Breath back into modern continuity, basically without explanation or apology. In Superman 152, Superman inexplicably uses Cold Breath against Mongol, and again against Metallo two issues later. From then, it would conveniently pop up here and there until it was a part of modern canon. In the New 52, Superman was using his cold breath immediately in Superman issue number one. Quote, Whoa ho, look at that. Superman's using the same cold wind shtick he used on that tenement fire a few months back. End quote. And the power would show up repeatedly in the series as well as in Supergirl issue number three. However, in the pages of Action Comics, which takes place before the main continuity, Clark doesn't puff a single super breath until 20 issues into the run. In issue 11, Clark acts as a fireman, but doesn't have the breath power that would have been really convenient to have in that line of work. In Superman Unchained issue 2, Superman performs the utterly impossible feat of freezing a water spout in seconds to suspend the world's largest tower from falling over. But let's go back to the 50s to find the first examples of cold breath or Superman using his breath to bring the temperature of something below the ambient temperature. As best I can tell, Superman doesn't develop cold breath until 1959. But there are two prior asterisks worth noting. In 1953's World's Finest, number 64, The Death of Lois Lane, Superman goes through elaborate measures to freeze crooks in standing water. Quote, At lightning speed, the man of steel rockets high into the stratosphere. And then Superman says, First, to inhale a super lungful of this sub-zero cold air, and now to blow it at the henchman. End quote. Then in 1957's Super Superman number 117, The Man with the Zero Eyes, features a cover with Superman declaring, Incredible, my supervision is working in reverse. It's radiating cold instead of heat. <laughs> that flip occurs because of an ice virus that turns Superman into a menace until he passes through the sun to cure himself. <laughs> These stories show that Superman didn't have the ability to chill his breath on his own and didn't know how to cope with the freezing power that he didn't have at the time. Near as I can tell, and please do chime in if you can cite earlier examples, the very first case of cold breath is in Superman number 129, May 1959. Clark Kent, Fireman of Steel. In order to save the, quote, super freeze ray machine from the planet Pluto, end quote, from a fire at the Superman Museum, quote, Quote, my super breath will cause super cooling and make the fire die out, end quote. And while putting out a fire is not a new feat, the entire room was frosted over with ice. And the fire chief says, quote, that space device Superman detonated in this museum must have turned on by itself and froze out the fire, end quote. So this is the first time that Superman's breath has made ice that I'm aware of. In July of the same year, Superman would freeze a tidal wave into a solid iceberg in action comics number 253, The Battle with Bizarro. From then on, the power would pop up through the 60s and beyond. So in terms of overall comic book history, let's do some rough estimates on the prevalence of these powers. If Superman has 50 pre-crisis years and 30 post-crisis years, Super Breath is basically there for almost all of it. You don't see it all the time, but you can argue that it's been there from the beginning of practically every iteration and every era. Cold Breath, however, is basically split down the middle. Superman generally doesn't start out with it, but he has it from the 60s to the reboot and from 2000 till today. It's interesting to find a power in such temporal echo boys, where proponents 
and detractors can each argue for its historical inclusion or exclusion. The adoption of super breath and cold breath in adaptations is generally uneven. More times than not, it's there, but typically not used to the degree its utility would dictate, and accompanied by all sorts of other insanity and arbitrary powers, which have not caught on or become staples like the breath powers. Despite the relatively rare appearances in the comics, one reason for the broad adoption of the breath powers is the rise of the Comics Code Authority in the 1950s and similar sentiments across media. Television censors were sensitive to the violence of throwing a punch. So instead, Superman would blow away the bad guys in the Super Friends cartoons spanning a decade. The powers do not appear in the most iconic Superman film of all time, Superman the Movie 1978. However, whatever famine of powers one might feel about the first film was quickly corrected with the gluttonous and nonsensical feast of fantastic feats in the sequel. Yes, Superman 2, 1981, featured the breath powers. Zod blows back the stream of a flamethrower, Ursa blows a helicopter a fatal kiss, and the Phantom Zone criminals punish Superman's supporters with gale force winds. Superman exhibits cold breath in that same fight, but this is the same film that featured tractor beam fingers, cellophane shields, a memory-erasing kiss, teleportation, and more. And I should add an asterisk for a deleted scene where Clark slows Lois's multi-story fall into a fruit stand. Superman. <laughs> you mean, you think I'm Superman? <laughs> Willing to bet my life on <laughs> Lois, you know, you are priceless. Really. I mean, that is the single most ridiculous thing I've ever... Lois, what are you doing? You wouldn't let me die, Superman. Ignoring entropy in Superman 3, 1983, Superman freezes the surface of a lake, cheats at bowling, puts out an Olympic torch, and is able to blow an oil spill back into its tanker. But the same film featured him purging the effects of synthetic kryptonite by strangling himself. Finally, in Superman 4, 1987, Superman freezes a lava flow, but also has wall-repairing, reverse entropy vision, and doorbell-ringing powers, among others. It's interesting, in the soup of available powers presented by the Christopher Reeve films, the breath powers are some of the ones that have stuck with the larger mythos. Okay, I don't want to get stuck on endless adaptations of Superman, so I'm skipping to adaptations of post-Crisis Superman, but I just wanted to touch on the animated series, Smallville, and Superman Returns. Bruce Timm's Superman basically did not have super breath for the run of the series. There's a small asterisk in that in the third episode, while John Corbin is teetering on the edge of a rooftop, Superman
Superman blows him over, but that's open to interpretation. Three quick examples of when the breath powers would have come in handy if he had them. In the Promethean, a space monster is stopped by a cooling chemical cocktail rather than sub-zero super breath. In the late Mr. Kent, Superman sucks away the poison gas by twirling rather than inhalation. And finally, in Where There's Smoke, Superman puts out a fire by spinning a boat propeller rather than with his breath powers. With Justice League, Superman gained super breath, used in The Terror Beyond, in Blackest Night, Tabula Rasa, and Clash, but never exhibited cold breath on the show. Incidentally, in Batman Beyond the Call, Superman uses a thunderclap to extinguish a high-rise fire, not super breath. Okay, on to Superman Returns. Not much to say here. Superman Returns premiered in the summer of 2006 as a quasi-continuation of the prior films. So naturally, he has the power which he uses once against a subterranean explosion. He doesn't use the power any other time, nor does he exhibit cold breath. And although Smallville predates Superman Returns, running a decade and over 200 episodes, Super Breath wasn't introduced to the show until the season 6 episode Sneeze in October 2006. Super Breath would only appear three more times, and Cold Breath wouldn't appear until three years later, twice in season 9 and twice in season 10, appearing in only about 3% of the episodes on the tail end of 10 years. Even fans of the show should be forgiven if they can't recall whether Clark had the power or not on Smallville, especially when some of those instances were as subtle as cooling a cup of coffee. Superman did have the power in the 90s with Lois and Clark, and now in Supergirl. Alright, even without covering all the other adaptations, by this point in the episode, you have a better historical background on the breath than probably any individual internet article out there. And with the history under your belt, now we're going to get into the science. And it's not the mission of this episode to debunk Superman's powers or to justify scientific apologetics to you. Both of those are deep topics in their own right. To me, understanding science is valuable and pleasurable all on its own. If you only need history and fantasy to accept Superman, that's fine. Personally, I enjoy the fact that such a long-lasting character can be explored under a scientific lens with more rigor than even more modern creations. It's a valuable mental exercise that extends to other walks of life. We are great at distinguishing between universes of discourse. We can distinguish between what's canon and what's not. We can fight passionately and knowledgeably about what might happen within fictional universes of discourse, like who would win in a foot race, Superman or the Flash. And when you think about fictional realities where different universes of discourses meet, like the DC-Marvel crossovers, you're actually engaging in some pretty serious ontological ponderings. You're holding in your mind an incredible number of propositions that are specific to different universes and figuring out exactly what would be true if those universes were combined. Our ability to understand and play around with fictional realities helps us think about other hypothetical realities too, like what will happen in the future and what the implications might be of different choices that we make. So treating non-existent things as if they're real? Nonsense probably isn't the right word for it. Being able to create and conceptualize a universe is a pretty amazing skill. However, to understand that lens, you have to understand the science. And when you understand the science, you might have a better understanding of why there might be some hesitation to adopt these powers in more realistic incarnations of Superman. We're going to explore this more over the course of the episode, but philosophically, the issue with cold breath is the inconsistency of source, medium, and effect. We've used this term in the past, but most of Superman's powers fall 
all into a black box, or you can say magic, where the rules of physics are broken and changed inside, but where we can see consistent and predictable inputs and outputs. The problem with cold breath is that most of the parts of the chain are transparent to science. We know the mechanism and source of breath. We know the medium of air, and we know the effect of cold air. Even if we can put a magic black box over the source and the effect, the medium is still completely exposed as decidedly unmagical. The air between Superman's magical internals and the magical effect of instantly freezing Superman's target is still just mundane, bound by physics and understood by science, air. There are many ways that you could resolve this inconsistency by changing the medium into magic or making the effects non-magical or by not having the power altogether, but let's get into the science first. As difficult as it was to find the history on this, the science was almost as sparse. In preparation for this episode, I combed through the science of Superman, the physics of superheroes, the science of superheroes, and the science of supervillains. I looked at unified theories, documentaries, pop sci articles, papers, and more. By and large, the breath powers are ignored, glossed over, or only trivially explained in a superficial sense. Ultimately, it's because it's not a rigorously scientific power, so no one really wants to get into the weeds of discussing the science behind super breath or cold breath. They don't want to burst that bubble, so they tend to give unsatisfactory science to explain the phenomenon as a panacea. Many try to bundle it with super strength, as Mark Wolverton does in The Science of Superman. Quote, there are other byproducts of that muscular strength that even qualify as powers in themselves. Super breath, for example, is a manifestation of both Superman's greater lung capacity and his ability to expel air with extreme force thanks to his powerful diaphragmic musculature. End quote. So let's start with that premise. Forget about the cold breath for now. Can super breath, as seen throughout Superman's history, be explained simply with super strength? Well, we have to know how breathing works. And let's let bioteacher Glenn Wokenfeld sing you the basics. Now let's take a look at lung ventilation. The way we power inhalation and exhalation, the thoracic chest cavities, a sealed closed chamber. That's why a chest wound carries so much danger. Just below the rib cage in a woman or man is a sheet of tissue called the diaphragm. Muscles below the diaphragm can pull it down. This powers ventilation, let me show you how. Inhalation pulls the diaphragm down, which increases chest cavity volume, so the pressure decreases. The higher pressure air outside the lungs flows in, the lungs inflate. That's inhalation. To exhale, you relax. Diaphragm arches up, sends chest cavity pressure up. So as chest cavity volumes decrease, the gases in your lungs have to be released. So breathe, inhale, pull the diaphragm down, let the air rush in, take it oxygen. Exhale, relax, let the air rush out. Feel the vocal cords vibrate when you talk or shout. Feel the air in your nose, then the pharynx, then the glottis, then the larynx, then the trachea, then left to right, bronchus to the smallest bronchioles, to the alveoli. Let the air out, breathe a happy sigh. 
So inhalation and exhalation are just slight changes in air pressure in your body balanced against atmospheric air pressure to move about half a liter of air with an ordinary breath that's called the tidal volume. You probably intuit that your lungs do not ever completely deflate 100%. You don't expel all six liters of your total lung capacity every time you breathe out. However, you can expel about 4.6 liters with a big breath, and that's what we call your vital capacity. So that volume of air isn't enough to put out an office fire. With super strength, would you be able to start a larger volume of air? Well, no. Based on the mechanism, it's clear that normal breathing does not act like a mechanical compressor. The inhalation is based on a pressure differential between high and low pressure, and there's an absolute limit on that. The lowest possible pressure is complete vacuum, but even if Superman could magically create that within his lungs, the air rushing in is based on atmospheric pressure. There is no significant compression. The reservoir and the pump are one and the same, making further compression essentially impossible, like trying to achieve compressive suction in the bulb of a turkey baster or an eyedropper. Now, one way Superman could compress air is if his cheeks were the compressor and he used his stomach as the reservoir, but that would make every example of super breath a super burp. And now, performing another classical work, the great Wackerotti. <coughs> Well, even if Superman can't use compression to drive air, can he just apply his super strength another way? Yes, sort of. Brian Jackson is a motivational speaker who holds multiple world records for various feats of exhalation, such as lifting heavy vehicles or bursting water bottles. Here's a doctor speculating on the basis of Jackson's ability. It's not the lungs per se, but the musculature forcing the air through the lungs. Every bit of him is coming through. And so it's not just the intercostals, it's not just the diaphragm, but it's the muscles of the chest, the legs, all the way down that is compressing from all sides. So you've got a larger volume compressed with a greater musculature, and that's what's able to produce that kind of force. So it sounds like Brian's developed a technique yeah. that no one else has and able to use his entire bodies to produce this air. Yeah, he has a greater lung volume, but in addition to that, I mean, I think it's the yes. technique. In the video, you can see how Jackson folds his entire body in half and uses more of his body to drive his lungs than just his diaphragm. At the end of the day, though, it's still down to a slight change in reservoir volume just to get a little more pressure. Additionally, it's short, quick exhalation with a very deliberate physical technique. It doesn't line up with what we see from super breath. Superman is able to use it without any specific bodily posture, and it typically takes on the form of a long, voluminous wind. We could fold it into strength if it weren't for the volume of air. If we argue that Superman's strength is just arbitrary addition of force vectors, then during inhalation, there's no force acting on the air to draw it in, only atmospheric pressure. But during exhalation, it's the creation of a high-pressure system within Superman, which must escape. And Superman could be applying his infinite arbitrary force vectors to that. So basically, we can explain Superman exhaling hard, fast, and forcefully, but we 
can't use this to explain Superman exhaling big volumes for extended periods. Well, another technique might supply an answer for duration at least, and that relates to our super burp illustration from before. That technique is called circular breathing, and I'll let the world record holder of a single sustained note, Kenny G, yes, that Kenny G, explain. Hello, it's Kenny G here. Welcome. I'm here today to talk to you about a cool thing that I've learned how to do, and it's called circular breathing. It's where you hold a note and you actually breathe while you're still sustaining the sound. So you're exhaling and inhaling at the same time, and it's called circular breathing. That was almost completely unhelpful, Kenny. (laughs) The gist of it is before you exhale your lungs, you fill your cheeks and drive air from your mouth while you inhale with your nose to refill your lungs, similar to how a bagpipe operates. If Superman had this technique mastered, he could blow continual super breaths. But note that there is no free lunch. Even if air is magically ejected from his mouth at speed, whatever volume of air he breathes out must be taken in at a comparable rate to take its place. With musical instruments, the technique is gentle within human ranges. With Superman, to generate a super breath, his lungs and cheeks would oscillate at an absurd degree. And that's not something we see with its traditional usage. So unless we keep our super breath feats in check, the only way Superman can blow a traditional super breath is with some internal magic, an unseen, unknown black box that allows Superman to inhale more than the known mechanism of breathing would allow, and to exhale more than he ever took in, or to compress impossible amounts of air somewhere effortlessly within himself, and to exhale it as if it were breath and not a burp. The latter implicates some additional physics, but for now, we're just slapping fantasy over the whole mechanics of it and assuming that Superman has the capability. Fine then, wonderful. If Superman has this magical ability, does it automatically implicate the cold breath ability? Well, no. To illustrate, let's take four super breath feats that often get mistakenly analogized to or conflated with cold breath. In the process, maybe we'll get a better grasp of the science of how things work. First example, extinguishing fire. Fire is hot, breath puts out the fire, therefore the breath must be cold. Perfect logic, right? (laughs) No, that is a classic causal fallacy. Yes, the cold breath is a sufficient condition to extinguish a fire, but it isn't a necessary condition. Therefore, the fact that breath puts out a fire does not make cold breath the only possible conclusion. You need the three elements of the so-called fire triangle to achieve ignition, heat, fuel, and an oxidizing agent, typically oxygen. You probably learned that model in grade school, noting that the removal of any element will put out fire. However, sustained combustion is better modeled by a fire tetrahedron with the fourth element of chemical chain reaction, wherein combustion continues to supply the other three elements and provide another avenue for extinguishing the fire. When you blow out a match or a candle, the cooling effect is nominal, and given that you're blowing roughly 20% oxygen at the flame, that isn't how you put the fire out. Instead, your breath forcibly separates the fuel from the source of heat or flame, momentarily ending the chain reaction and extinguishing the fire. How can this be if the candle or matchstick never moved? It's because the fuel isn't the visible solid, but the invisible vapors given off by the heated solid. From casual observation of a simple wood fire, it seems that the wood itself is burning. Actually, only the vapors given off by the logs supply the fuel that feeds the flames. This action can be readily seen in a simple laboratory experiment. A small quantity of wood shavings 
placed in a flask are heated by a Bunsen burner. The vapors rising from the heated wood can be ignited at the mouth of the flask. This is true of nearly all combustible materials, whether in a liquid or solid state. We know that it isn't really the cooling power of your breath most times, because even after blowing out the flame, you can typically reignite just the vapors and restart the reaction without reheating the candle or the matchstick below again. You might have seen or done this experiment yourself in school. So Superman can put out an office fire with super breath alone, without necessarily having to have cold breath. In some cases, cold alone doesn't even help. Hi right, everyone, welcome back to Cody's lab. Remember last time when we dumped liquid nitrogen into a grease fire? It actually made a much bigger explosion than I thought it would. What I think happened is the nitrogen actually was able to go down underneath the oil before it vaporized and that shoved the oil up so it was more like a whoosh and you know, throwing it straight up into the air. Okay then, second example. What about cooling hot stuff? Like the molten glass of Cinderella's red hot slippers, or just a bowl of hot soup. If I can lower the temperature of soup by blowing on it, doesn't that mean that super breath should be able to lower the temperature of anything to a super degree? And indeed, this is the reasoning in Action Comics 311, April 1964, Superman, King of the Earth, which you may recognize by its infamous cover with Superman upon a throne in a fur-trimmed cape, and an outrageous hat with prostrate citizens bringing him gemstones. At one point in this story, it is exclaimed, A bridge of ice leading to the offshore islands. It is a feat of magic. And in reply, another says, No, it is a super deed performed by the mighty one they call Superman. Just as you and I can cool a hot bowl of soup by blowing on it, a blast of his breath can freeze an ocean. This reasoning also appears in the 2006 Superman Returns promotional documentary, The Sign of Superman. Here's comedian Hal Sparks. We've all done it with soup. He just does it to a super extent. I'm sorry, but to me, this explanation is like nails on a chalkboard. We'll talk later why this kind of reasoning is appealing to some, but this kind of analogy or explanation is in complete defiance of thermodynamics. In this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics. Professor Michio Kaku's book summarizes the laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics, that the total amount of matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. Eventually, three laws of thermodynamics were postulated. The second law states that the total amount of entropy, disorder, always increases. Crudely speaking, this law says that heat flows spontaneously only from hotter to colder places. The third law states that you can never reach absolute zero. If we compare the universe to a game, and the goal of this game is to extract energy, then the three laws can be rephrased as follows. You can't get something for nothing. First law. You can't break even. Second law. You can't even get out of the game. Third law. Physicists are careful to state that these laws are not necessarily absolutely true for all time. Nevertheless, no deviation has ever been found. Anyone trying to disprove these laws must go against centuries of careful scientific experiments. The first law of thermodynamics. Heat is work and work is heat. Heat is work and work is heat. Very good. The second law of thermodynamics. Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Heat cannot of itself pass from one body to a hotter body. Heat won't pass from a cooler to a hotter. 
Heat won't pass from a cooler to a hotter. You can try it if you like, but you'd far better not. Uh. You can try it if you like, but you'd far better not. Uh. Cause the cold in the cooler will get hotter as a ruler. Cause the cold in the cooler will get hotter as a ruler. Because the hotter body's heat will pass to the cooler. Cause the hotter body's heat will pass to the cooler. Heat is work, and work is heat, and work is heat, and heat is work. Heat will pass by conduction, and the heat will pass by conduction. Heat will pass by convection. Heat will pass by convection. Heat will pass by radiation. Will pass by radiation, and that's a physical law. Heat is work, and work's a curse, and all the heat in the universe. It's gonna cool down, 'cause it can't increase. Then there'll be no more work, and there'll be perfect peace. Really? Yeah, that's entropy, man. <laughs> all because of the second law of thermodynamics, which lays down that you can't pass heat from a cooler to a hotter. Try it if you like, you far better. So, as in the restatement of the second law of thermodynamics by Flanders and Swan, heat will never pass on its own from a cooler body to a hotter one. Rather, heat will pass from the hotter body to the cooler. If the ambient temperature of the environment is cooler than the would-be target object, the object naturally and on its own will pass heat to the environment to reach equilibrium. Why does heat transfer from hot to cold? Heat is a form of energy. When energy is added to atoms, they begin to move more rapidly. Think of it like kinetic energy. When you push a ball or add energy to it, it rolls. If you have a stationary ball and you impact it with another ball, the energy of the rolling ball is transferred into the stationary ball, causing it to move. You would say that the stationary ball absorbed the faster ball's energy. It wouldn't be right to say that the stationary ball transferred its stationary state to the rolling ball. The same is said about atoms transferring energy. The fast-moving atoms impact slow-moving atoms, transferring their kinetic energy. Therefore, to say heat transfers from hot to cold really means that energy is transferred from fast-moving atoms to slow-moving atoms. Note that there is only ever a transfer of heat. There is no transfer of cold. As intuitive as it may seem to consider cold as a substance, a thing, or property, scientifically speaking, there is only ever an absence of heat. There is no such substance in physics as cold. Right? Cold is just the absence of heat energy. When you drop an ice cube into a drink, we intuit the cold passing from the ice into the drink. But again, the cold is not a thing to pass or give up. Ice does not give up its cold. Rather, the drink gives up its heat to the ice. So the heat of the drink drops while the heat of the ice rises until they are at equilibrium. With the second law of thermodynamics, it's clear that they will not continue to slingshot past one another. The drink will not get colder than the ice, and the ice will not get warmer than the drink was. If they did, the heat exchange would simply reverse and continue until equilibrium 
equilibrium was achieved. The water behind a dam, which will flow until the level is the same on both sides, but will never go back up. Or in hot tea, which will melt a cold ice cube until they reach a medium temperature. You never see tepid tea spontaneously generate an ice cube while heating up, even though the total energy would be the same. The mechanics of blowing on hot soup are a little bit more involved, but for the sake of simplicity, just because blowing on it cools it does not mean a super breath will ever make it cooler than the ambient temperature. The temperature change is not an absolute one-way arrow. One way you might intuit this is if we exchange the hot bowl of soup for a frosty cup of gazpacho, or soup chilled below ambient temperature. If you let it sit, it will eventually warm up to room temperature, and blowing on it will bring it there faster. There are reasons that the heat exchange is not as fast as the hot soup will cool, but that's beyond the scope of this episode. The point is that now that the temperature change is reversed, and your breath is now responsible for warming, the way you might use your breath to warm your hands on a cold night, you wouldn't conclude that that's an absolute proper of your breath, and that a super breath always and only heats and should bring gazpacho to a boil. Of course not. Tacking the word super in front of breath doesn't change the science behind heat exchange. So the hot soup analogy is bunk for ascribing freezing effects to super breath at normal ambient temperatures. Our third and penultimate example also comes from the 2006 Science of Superman special, and it's another misleading demonstration. With all due respect to Todd Barber, a NASA NASA engineer should not explain Superman's cold breath with the following. Does someone have to be from Krypton in order to change the temperature of their breath? You can do this demo at home. If you purse your lips and blow, you'll feel cool air. If you just breathe with open mouth, it's warm air. It's the difference in how your mouth forms and that tiny orifice coming out that forms the cool air. There are a lot of reasons that this is a misleading example. I almost don't know where to start. Well, it's a bit of a collateral matter, but let's start with using your own hand as the thermometer. This is incredibly problematic because our sense of temperature is subjective, relative, and more based in change and conduction than a reliable absolute measure. You already know this from the age-old metaphor on how to boil a live frog with gradual imperceptible increase in heat. Derek Mueller of Veritasium explores this further with two everyday objects, a book and a piece of metal, of the same temperature but of totally different tactile perception. In truth, there's no difference in the temperature between these two objects. If they've been in the same surroundings for a long period of time, they come to thermal equilibrium with their surroundings, which means they're both at the same temperature. But the metal feels colder because it's able to conduct heat away from my hand faster than the book. So just because an object feels feels colder, that doesn't mean that it actually has a lower temperature. It may just mean that it's conducting heat away from your hand faster. We learned earlier that objects will come to equilibrium, so you know intellectually that the bath rug and tile floor of your bathroom are the same temperature on a frigid morning. There's no energy being poured into that system by your rug, yet it's incredibly difficult to overcome the intuition and sensation that the tile is colder or that the rug is warmer. In reality, it isn't that the have different temperatures, but it's how good they are at pulling heat away from you. We're still on this tangent, but just one more example of how easy it is to fool our perception of temperature. <laughs> it feels so weird. So I've got my right hand in hot water, my left hand in cold water. What next? And now I want you to take both of your hands out and put them into the middle cup, which has lukewarm water, and tell me how that feels. Okay. Oh my word. The hand that was hot now feels cold, and the hand that was cold now feels hot. Even though they're in the same 
cup of water. So this is how people realized that our bodily sensations didn't necessarily give the right measure of temperature. Okay, none of that is exactly on point, but it's a bit of a rant that I've had pent up about the flawed methodology of using your own sense of temperature as a gauge for this kind of thing. Nevertheless, you can and do experience this, and the question is why? Well, the hot breath is relatively obvious. Your internal body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. As we know, the ambient 21 degree air that you breathe in won't stay at that temperature but warm up to your body temperature. And note too that your body burns calories and continually puts energy into that system to maintain temperature. So naturally, the air that you breathe out will be body temperature, which is typically warmer than the ambient air. Why then does air forced from pursed lips feel cooler? Well, despite what you may have read elsewhere, it's not pressure or the Joule-Thompson effect, which is about temperature gradations based on gas expansion. We'll come back to this later. No, it's only pressure in the sense that it allows the air escaping you to achieve sufficient velocity to become an inducing current, which entrains the ambient air around you towards the back of your hand. Ambient air is already cooler than your body temperature, and add in evaporative cooling from any moisture in your breath or on your skin, and forced convection from the moving air, and the blown breath is cooler. You can test that it's not about aperture size by using your nostrils and comparing a slow breath versus a fast one. However, the feeling of cool, just as in our illusions before, is contextual. The air that comes out of your lungs when you blow like a whistle doesn't necessarily feel cool all the time. It's all about context. If you were in a sauna that had a higher humidity than the air in your lungs, which is 98 uh, you know, percent humidity. So if you were in a room that had 100% humidity, you wouldn't get any evaporative cooling. And if you're in a sauna that has, you know, the ambient temperature of the air is a lot hotter than what's inside your body. If you actually blow on the back of your hand, it feels like fire. You're blowing the hot ambient air. Yeah, you're blowing the hot ambient air on and there's no evaporative cooling because there's nowhere for the moisture to go. Since the effect is basically just moving ambient air around, we're back to the same faults as using hot soup as an example. Just because your hand feels cool in one context doesn't mean super breath is going to be able to freeze anything simply by blowing harder or more. You will experience many of the same cooling effects with a fan, mechanically moving more air faster and harder than you ever will, but you understand and would not expect anything that the fan is blowing on to freeze because of airflow, right? Okay, but what about the Joule-Thompson effect? What about gas expansion? What about heat loss of a real gas, as opposed to an ideal gas model, to intermolecular forces due to compression? What about adiabatic cooling? Well, our fourth and final catch-all is meant to cover all these kinds of examples and more with a simple single rebuttal. Do the math. There is no denying that we can endlessly cite examples of real-life gas cooling by various methods. You might talk about a can of compressed air. You might talk about throttled air leaving a pressure cooker, and so on and so forth. Doubtless, these are representations of cooling gas, but they're not magic. They're not analogies that you can just extend by slapping the word super on them. They're not unknown mysteries that we don't understand. We can't say that evidence of some cooling effect means that Superman can generate any cooling effect. It's just like we can't use the earlier examples of temperature change to plot out an absolute temperature change in the same direction beyond equilibrium. Each and every one of these effects are tied to known equations with fixed math, fixed variables, and a known medium, air. We know how much expansion we'd need to see the temperature change we'd want and how much compression is required and so on. 
and the figures are absurd. And rather than walk you through each and every one of these equations and examples, which would make for terrible audio, I'd rather give you a sense of the limits that you'd be running into with these equations using some intuitive examples. I'm going to try to get away with using as little scientific jargon as possible to express those limits. But naturally, some precision is going to be lost in that effort, so your grace and understanding is appreciated on that. So our first limit is one that you've heard of before. Absolute zero. Zero Kelvin. A concept at which entropy is essentially zero, per the third law of thermodynamics. How am I doing at keeping the jargon out there? Now, remember that cold is not a thing or a substance or a state that can be magically thrust upon a thing. Instead, cold is the absence of heat or the energetic motion of the particles within the body. The closer one comes to absolute zero, the less internal molecular motion exists, barring some quantum effects well beyond the scope of this podcast. Absolute zero, conceptually, is the absolute most still the substance can achieve. You can't have less internal motion, less energy, or less heat. It is the minimum possible, even if it's not the total absence, again because of quantum quirks. Physicists know that absolute zero does not mean a complete absence of motion in a substance. Instead, zero degrees Kelvin marks the state of minimal motion of a substance particles. That's because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which says that for any ever-loving particle in the universe, it's impossible to know both its momentum and its exact position at the same time. So suppose you chill a lump of lead down to the point where there is no motion going on within it, even at a subatomic level. If you could do that, you'd know both the particles positions and their momentum, which would be zero. But measuring this is impossible. It's forbidden by the uncertainty principle, so it cannot be done. So you can't reach true zero degrees Kelvin, but you can get pretty darn close, like a billionth of a degree away. There are no negative temperatures beyond zero Kelvin. Asterisk. I'll put a link in the show notes. So in the tug of war between hot and cold, heating and cooling, you can look at how much space on the spectrum of temperature that's below our experience versus above. We live our lives around 300 Kelvin. Think about that. Absolute zero is sometimes compared to the speed of light, a cosmological limitation on all of reality. Yet our everyday experience is only 300 degrees away from an absolute limitation in the universe on one side of the scale. Well, what about hot? An environment of just 315 Kelvin is already lethal to humans. At 1400 Kelvin, you have molten lava. Four times that is the surface of the sun. At 5800 Kelvin, hotter than the hottest melting point of anything in the known universe. But that's still 3,000 times cooler than the 15 million degree core of the sun. But nothing compared to the 350 million degrees of a thermonuclear explosion. Scientists have achieved one exakelvin in experimental conditions and conceived of the hottest possible temperature as approximately 1.4 times 10 to the 32nd degrees Kelvin, better known as Planck temperature. So back to that tug of war between absolute cold and absolute hot. On the cold side, we have 300 degrees of give versus 100 million 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 degrees. There isn't nearly enough give on the cold side of the spectrum to accommodate all possible heat Superman's cold breath may encounter. And this should definitively answer which power wins in a straight fight, cold breath versus heat vision. Heat vision can get much hotter than cold breath can get cold. But that runway of cold is trimmed even shorter 
Walker by the fact that heat vision is a magic ray, while cold breath uses a known medium, air. And that's our second limitation to intuit. Just how cold can air get? It's overly generous, and not to mention scientifically impossible, to suggest that Superman's breath can be absolute zero. And one way to intuit this is to imagine Superman trying to use his freeze breath underwater against a target 10 meters away. What do you think happens? Obviously, the water freezes and his mouth ices over and it doesn't work. Sometimes, it's easy to forget the invisible air around us is a substance. We are always surrounded by it and we don't live in a vacuum. Air is roughly 80% nitrogen and 20% oxygen and has a boiling point of 77 Kelvin and a freezing point of 58 Kelvin. Superman's cold breath isn't a freeze ray. It isn't liquid spittle or solid frozen chunks. It's breath. It's air, chilled, and no colder than 78 Kelvin, lest we get liquid nitrogen and essentially our underwater example. So we're never getting any colder than liquid nitrogen if cold breath is going to look anything like what we traditionally see. Now, at this point, some will start to ascribe liquid nitrogen with magical cold properties, like they might grant the vacuum of space magical freezing properties. One might think that being dipped or splashed with liquid nitrogen turns you into a frozen statue, but liquid nitrogen has no magical cold field to impart. It just has thermal space to take up heat from your body. And in this case, our bodies are so hot relative to the boiling point of liquid nitrogen that in brief exposures, the nitrogen immediately boils off and creates an insulating vapor layer barrier between the liquid nitrogen and your skin. This is the Leyden frost effect, and you'll find plenty of YouTube demonstrations of people dipping their hands into liquid nitrogen, pouring liquid nitrogen onto their hands, or in Grant Thompson's case, splashing himself in the face with liquid nitrogen. Don't try this at home. What if the liquid nitrogen splashed into my face? Could it make me go blind instantly? Could it freeze my skin cryogenically? Now this is not one of those experiments that I would encourage you to try at home. This I would classify as very, very dangerous. So I'm not going to try it with one drop of liquid nitrogen. I'm going to try it with a whole cup. This, my friends, is the real deal. This is liquid nitrogen, and this is going in my face right now. Now you might be wondering what this feels like to get hit in the face, and honestly, it doesn't really feel like anything. It's almost like walking into a room with a cold draft. Things cool down a little bit, but water would stick to your skin, whereas liquid nitrogen just evaporates immediately. <sighs> So there you have it guys, we dispelled the myth that liquid nitrogen contacting on skin will instantly freeze or blind you. Now I have to confess something here, I knew that liquid nitrogen wasn't going to hurt me. Why? Because I play with this stuff, I've played with it for years, and I know the boundaries, I'm familiar with it. It basically just repels and sheds off like water. Likewise, while the vacuum of space is cold, you would not freeze. So what about freezing to death? At first blush this makes sense because the universe is like the coldest place in the universe. About 2.7 Kelvin or negative 270 degrees Celsius, but in order for your body to lose heat, it needs something to transfer that heat to. This is known as thermal conduction, and in a vacuum, there's no air, there's no stuff around you, which means that there's nothing to absorb your body heat. So you wouldn't freeze either. So it's like, will I die at all? Well, yeah, you would. You're not Superman. While a vacuum isn't terribly relevant, it serves to dispel the myth that mere exposure to cold causes freezing, and it relays the importance of a convective medium. While vacuum is a perfect insulator theoretically, dry air is still one of the better insulators 
oscillators available. Like most gases, it has a low thermal conductivity, low density, and low specific heat capacity. So the flow of heat changes the temperature of a system. But exactly how much it changes the temperature depends on two things. The first is the system's mass. The more mass a system has, the more heat it takes to change its temperature. More massive systems have more matter after all, so it takes more energy to change its average kinetic energy. But a temperature change also depends on something called the specific heat. Specific heat is a measure of how well a substance stores heat. Every substance has its own specific heat, and the higher it is, the more energy transfer, in the form of heat, it takes to change its temperature. Water, for example, has a very high specific heat compared to, say, aluminium or aluminum. That means it takes much more heat to change the temperature of water compared to aluminium. By way of comparison, liquid water has over 3,000 times the volumetric heat capacity of air. A human body has a relatively high heat capacity, is self-regulating to a degree, and has relatively poor thermal conductivity to air, which is also a poor conductor. And that makes it possible for people to survive and indeed enjoy the recent fad of cryotherapy. It's called cryotherapy. 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 More and more people are venturing into the frozen zone. He's in something called a cryosauna, a tank that fills up with liquid nitrogen with you in it. At negative 262 degrees. So they're talking about 110 Kelvin, 200 below normal ambient temperatures, and just 33 degrees away from nitrogen turning liquid. Okay, but they're being exposed to standing air. What if it's being blown by super breath? Well, the effect of airflow on heat transfer is to increase the convective heat transfer coefficient. If you graph the air heat transfer coefficient against airflow velocity, you get a curve that flattens out and levels off around 20 meters per second, or gale force winds with only about a 50% increase in heat transfer. Essentially, any flow beyond that does not increase the heat transfer. And this is a bit of a glib way to intuit it, but imagine an extreme high flow of air, more commonly described as an explosion which is a rush of quickly expanding gases. That would not generally be described as a cooling wind, right? <laughs> and that's where some of the gas expansion equations put us. In order to account for all the heat that needs to be sucked out of a body to get the effects that we see in comics, films, TV, and video games. So you might be wondering why I keep bringing up the human body in all these examples, and it's because that tends to be the quintessential cold breath feat, harmlessly freezing an enemy still, if only for a moment, ignoring the fact that we still don't know how to safely recover people from cryogenic freezing yet, or the impossibility of cold air accomplishing the effect that we want to see. Let's just skip to the end result, the effect, the flash frozen bad guy, to see how insane this commonplace example of super Superman's cold breath really is. Although we see things like snow and steam all the time, I don't think we really comprehend how much energy has to enter or leave a system for water to change phases. Water has a high specific heat, which is the amount of energy that you need to input into a certain amount of mass to raise it by one degree Celsius. Water has a higher specific heat than just about any other common substance on the planet, requiring just over four joules per gram of water to raise it just one degree. This value means that it takes a lot of energy to raise water's temperature, or that a lot of energy needs to leave water for it to cool down. This is why, despite the fact that the sun is always beating down on it, that the Earth's oceans don't change temperatures rapidly. It's very gradual. To flash freeze a man weighing 66 kilograms 
in a tenth of a second with a 113 degree temperature drop requires the total release of heat of 41 megajoules. For context, 10 kilograms of TNT has the energy output of 47 megajoules. The first rule of thermodynamics, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So if this heat energy has left our frozen batty, it must go into the air surrounding him. And that's a massive heat dump into a poorly conductive medium with a low heat capacity. The heat will not freely flow through the air, but instead it's jammed up against this thermal wall and creates a concentrated volume of superheated air with a momentary temperature of 41,000 Kelvin, or eight times hotter than the surface of the sun. And this leads to an explosion and shockwave with lethal overpressure and deadly temperatures of 700K. If you want to check the math, I'll put a link in the show notes to the 2015 University of Leicester paper on the matter, and you might remember the University of Leicester's 2014 paper on how Superman outputs 650,000% more energy than he takes in from sunlight, concluding that he must derive his energy elsewhere. <laughs> I concur, and I'll put a link in the show notes for fun. And this is for a body temperature man weighing 66 kilograms, not tons of molten lava or the surface of a lake or a tidal wave. The energy that needs to come out is what Superman's cold breath has to absorb at speeds and magnitudes completely impossible for the medium of air. You're asking for a puff of air to gently and instantly soak up the energy of an atomic bomb in some cases. All that said, I don't think the objections to cold breath typically come from an intuition of the magnitudes or the math involved. It isn't about the thermodynamics or science, but storytelling. And I think the things that recommend the power are also the same things that end up disqualifying it, which is why the breath powers manage to find themselves sitting between the realm of the stable powers and exotic one-offs. By sheer repetition, they manage to be on the fringe of routinely listed powers, but at the same time often end up left off when deliberately considered anew. Like being omitted from the 2015 promo listing powers at the beginning of the show or in nearly nine seasons of Smallville or whenever else Superman starts over. We certainly see the breath powers more than super ventriloquism, shape-shifting, time travel, amnesia kisses, or telekinesis. So what is it about the powers where they're not quite a given, but also more than a one-time oddity? To me, I believe it's because as fanciful and as magical as super breath is, and despite defying science, it still follows psychological rules of magical thinking, which are intuitive to most. Magical thinking is another show, but we can summarize it as believing in causal or related ties between things which cannot be reasonably justified. It can be anything from the induction of a positive placebo effect to obsessive compulsive rituals overtaking a life. Broadly, Superman is conceived of doing anything that we can do only better. And even if the science contradicts that or limits that, it doesn't prevent the psychological rule of magical thinking to override that in our intuitions. Even so, those who study magical thinking find that it isn't totally arbitrary and capricious, just random fantasy for fantasy's sake. Instead, the human mind is drawn to constraints and rules which repeat themselves everywhere. One of the first rules of magical thinking, the law of contagion. Which can be summarized as once in contact, always in contact. Carol Nemiroff is a professor of psychology at the University of Southern Maine. The second law is the law 
of similarity. Like if you have a lock of hair from Elvis Presley, you can auction that off for over $100,000 because it supposedly contains his essence. These were pulled out, these were abstracted from a 12-volume compilation of magical practices and superstitious beliefs worldwide by Sir James Fraser, the anthropologist, and he identified them as principles that underlie virtually all examples that he could come up with, that he could identify. And that's across cultures across the world. Exactly. And that's a rabbit hole for another time. But I think back to some of the first examples of super breath as a proxy for magic and see how it differs from other one-off powers that tend to be fringe or forgotten. It's not that the other powers aren't in our lexicon of fantastic powers or that the powers aren't some sort of amplification of something that we can already do. If Superman were simply a fairy tale fantasy character, he's preceded by the Big Bad Wolf, the North Wind, Jack Frost, and the Snow Queen. One-off powers like shape-shifting are already in fairy tales and an amplification of what a normal mortal rubber-faced impersonator might do. Instead, I think we instinctively understand that Superman is more compelling when at least somewhat constrained. We want Superman to enact his will mechanically and physically, not as some omnipotent reality bender. As a fictional character, Superman could have created the slippers by fiat, a magical wave of his hand. Yet the authors made Superman do something magical, but bounded by some rules and restrictions to accomplish it. It's more interesting that Superman has to make do with the powers that he does have to creatively accomplish the same thing a fairy godmother might, rather than just will the slippers into being or grant a wish with a nod like a genie. And that seems to be the strength of Superman's breath powers. They introduce interesting drama with a powerful and versatile ability that's still more constrained and intuitively rule-based than the more esoteric powers on the forgotten fringes. Put it another way, think of some of the central dilemmas of Superman's existence which drive his story. Many of them deal with the protection of his secret identity. Well, the ability to shapeshift completely diffuses that. The amnesia kiss cuts off that source of anxiety, tension, and drama. A similar related dilemma is Superman's inability to act while in the guise of Clark Kent. Well, telekinetic powers reverse entropy vision and turning back time all undo any iota of stakes in those situations. We like the breath powers more than these powers because Superman still has to follow some rules. He can't just will whatever he wants, but has to wield a gust of wind. And the tricks and the creativity and the cleverness that goes into using it delights the audience more than Superman simply wishing things to be. There's also a nice symmetry with the heat vision and a natural and intuitive magical thinking role that if Superman can create heat, well, he ought to be able to command cold as well. So the breath powers are more constrained than turning back time, more intuitively something humans can already do than an amnesia kiss, more symmetric with his heat vision than, say, ventriloquism, and preserves the drama of his central dilemmas better than shapeshifting. However, while the cold breath is ahead of the pack of these oddball powers, it's down the totem pole for the core powers for similar reasons. The rules barely constrain the breath powers in a reliable fashion. The power is intuitive to a degree, but certainly not a scientific one. The power is symmetric, but only against heat vision, and somewhat redundant with existing powers. But most of all, unlimited cold breath completely undercuts many central Superman dilemmas and drama. If Superman's cold breath is a magical freeze ray, consider all the conflicts killed and the drama dashed. There is no fire in the Sterling building. Superman wings his way through the air to attempt a daring rescue of the girl trapped on the 20th floor. Flames crackle and spit like things alive as he reaches the window. There is no flood of Dyerville. 
one chance in a thousand. Even Superman can't hold back a flood that can kill every living soul in Dyerville. No Hoover Dam in Superman the movie, no bomb in Superman 2, no oil rig rescue in Man of Steel, perhaps no Battle of Smallville, no Mexico rescue in Batman v Superman, no rocket rescue, no flood rescue, and no Batman fight if Superman has a freeze ray. Superman is stripped of historical heroism staples without these rescues, and is even less compelling in a fight. When can he excuse throwing a punch if he can disable with wind or apprehend with ice? Rescues are easy, fights regress back to the Super Friends show, and in terms of preserving the secret identity, Super Breath often ends up almost as a proxy for telekinesis. Superman uses it to push and pull in the guise of Clark Kent without having to break cover without breaking a sweat, and without the drama or tension intended by the alter ego. The power to drain any system of energy or to snuff out a solar system turns tornadoes trivial, eruptions easy, hurricanes into hiccups, and tsunamis into trifles. It's a Swiss army knife second only to flash-styled super speed, and accordingly, even after it becomes adopted, routinely ends up inexplicably forgotten to keep from breaking the story, just as much as super speed conveniently fails to appear when it otherwise ought to. When care for consistency and consequences fall by the wayside, he becomes more free to use the power without regard for common sense. And there's a place for that. Grant Morrison celebrates this attitude with the following quotation from his book, Super Gods. I tend to believe that it's adults who have the most trouble separating fact from fiction. A child knows that real crabs on the beach do not sing or talk like the cartoon crabs in The Little Mermaid. A child can accept all kinds of weird-looking creatures and bizarre occurrences in a story because the child understands that stories have different rules that allow for pretty much anything to happen. Adults, on the other hand, struggle desperately with fiction, demanding constantly that it conform to the rules of everyday life. Adults foolishly demand to know how Superman can possibly fly, or how Batman can possibly run a multi-billion dollar business empire during the day and fight crime at night, when the answer is obvious even to the smallest child, because it's not real. Morrison gave a more profanity laid an off-quoted version of the same idea in a 2011 Rolling Stones interview, which famously calls it idiotic to question who pumps the Batmobile's tires. Reading it favorably in context, Morrison was specifically addressing Wortham's assertion on how fiction influences the development of young children. But these soundbites have mimetically been taken out of context as a blanket condemnation of any realism in comics or questions of their premises. A narrow and closed-minded, it's fantasy, don't ask me termination of any inquiry. But never mind the fact that Morrison would go on to address how Batman runs a business empire in Batman Incorporated, or how Superman flies in his new 52 action run. Or that Grant Morrison as a person is on the more open-minded side of the spectrum than most, probably. Let's tackle the argument on its face, as if it actually was a condemnation of questions like those who like to cite it say that it is. To begin with, the premise is completely flawed. The amount of questions asked has little to do with the capacity to separate fact from fiction. It's kind of ridiculous to propose that adults don't know the difference or that all kids do. We've talked in the past on this show about Kirk Allen foregoing actor screen credit to not disturb the childhood illusion. We've talked about kids who thought a cape might make them fly. And who can forget the infamous incident of a boy wanting to test out Superman's invulnerability by offering to shoot actor George Reeves with a real gun. Here, dramatized in Hollywoodland. Hey, Superman! Well, hello there, young man. What's your name? Kenneth Giles. Can I shoot you? Kenneth? 
Why would you want to do something like that? So the bullet bounces off, can I? Well, if you did shoot me and the bullet bounced off, it might accidentally hit someone else. We don't want that to happen, do we? No. Well, why don't you just, you and I, here we go, partner. Why don't you just give me that? Just hand me that for one minute. Moreover, the quotation acts as if only adults are inquisitive. Here's John Green for Mental Floss. A report published in 2013 surveyed a thousand mothers from the UK, and they found that moms get asked approximately 300 questions every single day. Four-year-old girls are the biggest question askers, averaging 390 a day. The Morrison quote sounds like someone without kids. Why have I got a camera in front of my face? What shall I do later? Can I have a baby brother? What's your favorite thing? Shall I swing? Can I have a biscuit? Can we start the question? Yes, let's go. Why am I putting ice cream on? Why are they called cupcakes? Can I lick my finger? No, wait till you're finished. Yeah. At the halfway stage, things are progressing nicely. Zachary has so far asked 122 questions. Brian has asked 157 and Imani is staggering 177, giving an average of 152, putting them on course to smash the predicted total of 288. Hello. Hello. Will they be able to keep it up? Am I as fast as you say about, Mum? Is the sun hot? Are there any ducklings? Can I have a lolly or an ice cream? What's for dinner tonight? Oh. I have a chicken little say. I've got muscles. Well, that was impressive. The question is, did our children really ask as many as 288 questions over the course of the day? Let's find out. Drum roll, please. Thank you. The average number of questions asked by our three children over the course of their waking day was an incredible 312. Why? 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 Because I said so, all right? <laughs> Most of those questions aren't thinly veiled rhetorical criticisms of creator shortfalls or gaps in world building. People ask questions, children and adults alike, because they're interested and engaged, full of curiosity and wonder, eager to learn, explore, and discover. Even the greatest content creators are finite, and that's where the richness of reality and science can provide an infinite horizon of exploration when incorporated as an ingredient. Here's Professor Kakelios writer of the physics of superheroes and science advisor on Watchmen. But as Alex McDowell, the production designer of Watchmen, described it, they want to know what's around the corner of a long hallway, even if the audience doesn't go down that corridor. So they wanted to know the grounding behind the science. They would team up again for Man of Steel to provide reality, nuance, gravity, and complexity woven into the fabric of their world building. This kind of approach only happens when you're sincere, when you appreciate the thing enough to take it seriously and actually invest effort into 
authenticity. It takes a totally different level of care, effort, and ambition to research the real, make it feel authentic, respect your audience to get it without tropes, all while still communicating something compelling. The quality of Homeland or Mr. Robot is not some sort of embarrassed reaction to Chuck or hackers, any more than the culinary technique or execution on the catch of the day is some sort of intentional rejection of fish sticks, telling the chef they don't understand fish because the catch of the day isn't as universal as fish sticks is daft. Examining the chef's technique doesn't somehow take fish sticks off the menu. The need to pit two executions with different aims against one another is an unnecessarily closed-minded narrative to promote, like saying that only fish stick fans really understand fish. Instead of pitting the dishes against one another, why not revel in the fact that we have the ability to enjoy both, and to each according to his or her own tastes? To that end, science and realism are generally not the dish itself, but a central technique, ingredient, or garnish. Like colors or music, there are harmonies in fiction which embrace science as a component, and there are realms where its usage is more challenging to incorporate. Science is not the enemy of superheroes, much less the sci-fi-laden Superman. If being comic booky means escapism and fantasy or a nostalgic chicken nugget, literary, political, psychological, and scientific approaches mean engaging, revelatory, adult food to chew on. Hank Green from Crash Course Philosophy. 20th century British philosopher R.G. Collingwood acknowledged that art is frequently used as an escape from life, a simple amusement, a distraction. But he also said that the best art, the art that really matters, is the stuff that changes the way we interact with the world. World. So Collingwood drew a distinction between what he called amusement art and magic art. Amusement art helps the audience escape from reality, he said, diving into a no-stakes fictional world after a stressful day. But magic art is the stuff that helps the audience learn how better to interact with this world's reality. A great example of this is Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Beecher Stowe's story helped change our national mindset about slavery by making white readers see African Americans as human beings with whom they had a lot in common, rather than as a nameless other who should be thought of as property. Collingwood felt we should spend our time on magic art like that, the stuff that helps us live better rather than simply running away from the world. Magic art is not embarrassed by amusement in entertainment, it just seeks more from it. It strikes me as unnecessarily limiting to suggest that simply because Superman can be enjoyed superficially in small doses with straightforward, feel-good sophistry, that it should never be appreciated as an adult who can appreciate greater complexity still with a deep sense of wonder. If we open our minds, we can turn the corner on that long hallway, and in Batman's case, find the mechanic, Earl Cooper and his daughter Marva, who pumped the tires. Well, the alignment, the whole suspension, all shot the heck. I'll call you in a couple of days. Better make it a week. Looks like we're gonna have to order a whole new drivetrain. Questioning reality allows us to find richness and joy in that extra facet of Batman's being, the revelation of a delightful secret that you wouldn't have known if no one had bothered to ask, an insight into the logistics of Batman, making it just a little more real for you, more known, more engaging. It's why the worlds built by Tolkien and Martin are so engrossing compared to less detailed fare. While this episode has largely discussed how science confronts the breath powers, it's exactly those kinds of confrontations that lead 
leads to new discoveries. The pursuit of perpetual motion drove the study of heat and work and spawned the field of thermodynamics. Challenging the math of wave equations is what led to the insight that they are made of divisible quanta, packets of energy or particles, leading to the quantum revolution. Only by knowing the boundaries of what is known can you fully appreciate when those boundaries are pushed or crossed. If to you Superman is just a magical fantasy character, then nothing he does is surprising, impossible, or innovative. But when you know just how prescient his nearly century-old story has been, it just deepens your appreciation for a character that's been engaging interest in science all that time. Superman has always gone hand-in-hand -hand with science and science fiction. From the very first story as an evil scientist to an extraterrestrial origin in another solar system with a rocket ship. A quarter century before the first human spaceflight. This could be a series of episodes all on its own, so I'll just try to keep the summary short. But time and time again, we find ourselves in the real world catching up to something already established in Superman. Obviously, early on, Superman was dueling with death rays and atomic beam machines, even before the first atomic bomb. But the most amusing version of that predictive power was the U.S. government censoring the Superman comic for reasons of national security. U.S. censors were worried when Superman got too close to the sensitive subject of an atom-smashing cyclotron. The FBI came into the office, Superman editor Jack Schiff recalled years later. They told us to change the indicated Superman strip then running in order to eliminate a cyclotron that was featured. The A-bomb was being developed. The war planners had taken the matter seriously enough to mark their memo secret, and Harry's marketing team later used the crackdown to boast that Superman readers had a comic strip preview of the world's most carefully guarded secret. Two other Superman stories, one with a cover of him watching an atomic bomb test, the other where Lex Luthor tries to use an A-bomb to do away with Superman, saw their publication postponed until after the war. When superhearing becomes impossible because no sound could be carried that far or that fast, we get quantum entanglement capable of spooky action at a distance, defying distant divides. Carbon nanotubes present a supermaterial which might just manage to act as Superman's suit and cape in more terrestrial cases. X-rays let you see through objects, but not in a way which might let you read a closed book or say the name off a scientist's pocketed badge. Until now, as the news broke just last month and just this June, a paper on gene activity expressing after death was published, which could give scientific credence to the idea of Superman's resurrection and return. Five years prior, biologists built a living laser in a single human cell and some jellyfish protein. In 2012, Neil deGrasse Tyson went about finding a real-life solar system to act as Krypton's in the comics. In 2013, Professor Zhang announced his, quote, Superman crystal unquote, one day capable of storing up to 360 terabytes of data on a five-dimensional storage medium. Asterisk. Every few years, scientists make milestones in laser cooling and exploring the likes of superfluids and superconductors and near-absolute zero temperatures. It's thrilling to see how many of these Superman-enabling scientific stories have spawned in just the last few years. Even if Larry Niven postulates that Superman's sonic booms may shatter an entire city's windows, NASA has explored ways to mitigate those booms, which may turn out to be what Superman had been doing all along. But speaking of sci-fi writers, I might be inclined to take Asimov over Niven. An MIT class sent Mort a letter from Albert Einstein, who asserted that nothing, not even Superman, could move faster than the speed of light. Mort consulted his good friend Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, who said that Professor Einstein's statement is based on theory, 
Superman's speed is based on fact. Asimov's rebuttal is the essential retort to attempts at scientifically debunking Superman's powers. When given decades of data having done it, the approach isn't to say that he shouldn't or couldn't have, but to accept that he did and endeavor to understand why or how it might be. In a certain sense, science is the study of impossibility, which makes Superman the perfect subject. Once something is known and established and certain, there is no more science to do there, nothing left to discover, test, or experiment. Science is the exploration of the boundary, of the edge, of what is impossible until it becomes possible. In realms as great as science, philosophy, politics, psychology, art, and so on, we should always thirst for knowledge with humility and an open mind. That's what learning is. Learning is being open to knowledge you didn't have before. However, knowledge, once acquired, is still only a tool. For example, you can use science to be like Lex, or you can use it to be like Jor-El, or any number of other science heroes. We should try and take the same humble attitude required to learn, and apply it to your use of that knowledge and interactions with others. It doesn't matter if you're versed in science, or in comic book lore, or in superhero history, or whatever. You can use that knowledge to encourage wonder and inquiry, or you can use it to mock, denigrate, and discourage. If somebody uses their knowledge to try to put you down, recognize that just because they're mishandling their gift of knowledge and apprehension, it doesn't mean that it isn't a gift worth pursuing or that you will mishandle it like them. Never let anyone try to make you ashamed about your curiosity, wonder, and desire to learn or discover. Don't let anyone try to dismiss your pursuit of knowledge just because the question came from a comic. Superman has always invited and inspired this kind of inquiry, and from the very beginning offered different answers to explain the fantastic, updating those explanations as our scientific understandings advanced. If we use mythology to understand our world, why can't our mythology reflect our sophistication? If Superman causes you to study relativistic thermodynamics, zero-point energy, gravity waves, xenobiology, or dark matter, so much the better. The purpose of these questions and this lens of analysis isn't to say no or to ruin stories or to tear down superheroes. It is always to further engage further educate and increase appreciation and immersion. Scientific accuracy increases the plausibility of stories, the credibility, the truthfulness, allowing the audience to lose themselves in the story. Approaching a story scientifically puts an emphasis on internal logic with the goal of keeping it elegant and sound. In the end, it's not the end-all or be-all of storytelling, but it's just another ingredient or technique worth appreciating. The National Academy of Sciences created the Science and Entertainment Exchange to put content creators in touch with scientists who might consult on their efforts to better communicate science to their audience. Here are just a few testimonials. People in the entertainment community, creative types, are fascinated by science. They love what you do. Science fiction is only really at its best when it's got science at its core. Science is not a negligible part of storytelling. It is woven into the fabric of who we are. The one consistent thing I've noticed from every science salon I've been to is I leave more curious than when I arrived. The science professionals that, that they've hooked me up with has been incredible and invaluable to my storytelling. When there is authenticity 
inaccuracy in projections and scientific data that's authentic. It sometimes invests a film with a certain edge that becomes compelling. It's been a, a really important resource for me to kind of get things right. And I think that movies can be incredibly influential on audiences. And when you can get the science right for audiences, you kind of have a double win. We need to make science come alive for young people. We need to make it actually entertaining. Any exploration of science in a story, a rich exploration of science will drive young people toward the sciences and teach them an appetite for that knowledge. So after building up Superman without breath powers as more scientific, does that mean that we dismiss all those that do have the powers? Of course not. This show is about appreciation and magic and fantasy. Well, that's another episode. As for the breath powers, I appreciate the execution thus far, but I'm open to whatever comes. I hope that my dive into Superman's history and adaptation at the start of this episode is a reminder of the many different approaches to Superman that each brings something to the table. Let's try to show one another a little grace and understanding for their particular tastes and preferences rather than feel the need to put down, pit against, or divide. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. I really, really do. I just don't have the time to do it most times. And if you've been sticking with me, you probably do too. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. Okay, I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. In the spirit of enjoying the impossible under a scientific lens, here's an excerpt from The Physics of the Impossible by Professor Michio Kaku. Without science, there is no science fiction. I came to realize that these tales were simply impossible in terms of the science involved, just flights of the imagination. Growing up meant putting away such fantasy. In real life, I was told, one had to abandon the impossible and embrace the practical. However, I concluded that if I was to continue my fascination with the impossible, the key was through the realm of physics. Without a solid background in advanced physics, I would be forever speculating about futuristic technologies without understanding whether or not they were possible. I realized I needed to immerse myself in advanced mathematics and learn theoretical physics. So that is what I did. In my own short lifetime, I have seen the seemingly impossible become established scientific fact over and over again. Just because something is impossible today, will it remain impossible centuries or millions of years into the future? Think back 150 years to those technological advances that were declared impossible by scientists at the time and that have now become part of our everyday lives. Jules Verne wrote a novel in 1863, Paris in the 20th century. In it, Verne predicted what Paris might look like in the year 1960. His novel was filled with technology that was clearly considered impossible in the 19th century, including fax machines, a worldwide communications network, glass skyscrapers, gas-powered automobiles, and high-speed elevated trains. Not surprisingly, Verne could make such stunningly accurate predictions because he was immersed in the world of science, picking the brains of scientists around him. A deep appreciation for the fundamentals of science allowed him to make such startling predictions. 
Sadly, some of the greatest scientists of the 19th century took the opposite position and declared any number of technologies to be hopelessly impossible. Lord Kelvin, perhaps the most prominent physicist of the Victorian era, he is buried next to Isaac Newton in Westminster Abbey, declared that heavier-than-air devices such as the airplane were impossible. He thought X-rays were a hoax and that radio had no future. Lord Rutherford, who discovered the nucleus of the atom, dismissed the possibility of building an atomic bomb. Think how fantastic today's televisions, computers, and internet would have seemed at the turn of the 20th century. More recently, black holes were once considered to be science fiction. Einstein himself wrote a paper in 1939 that proved that black holes could never form. Yet today, the Hubble Space Telescope and the Chandra X-ray Telescope have revealed thousands of black holes in space. Ironically, the serious study of the impossible has frequently opened up rich and entirely unexpected domains of science. For example, over the centuries, the frustrating and futile search for a perpetual motion machine led physicists to conclude that such a machine was impossible, forcing them to postulate the conservation of energy and the three laws of thermodynamics. Thus, the futile search to build perpetual motion machines helped to open up an entire new field of thermodynamics, which in part laid the foundation of the steam engine, the machine age, and the modern industrial society. We ignore the impossible at our peril. In the 1920s and 1930s, Robert Goddard, the father of modern rocketry, was the subject of intense criticism by those who thought that rockets could never travel in outer space. They sarcastically called this pursuit Goddard's folly. In 1921, the editors of the New York Times railed against Dr. Goddard's work. Professor Goddard does not know the relation between action and reaction, and the need to have something better than a vacuum against which to react. He seems to lack the basic knowledge ladled out daily in high schools. Rockets were impossible, the editors huffed, because there was no air to push against in outer space. Sadly, one head of state did understand the implications of Goddard's impossible rockets. Adolf Hitler. During World War II, Germany's barrage of impossibly advanced V-2 rockets rained death and destruction on London, almost bringing it to its knees. Studying the impossible may have also changed the course of world history. In the 1930s, it was widely believed even by Einstein, that an atomic bomb was impossible. Physicists knew that there was a tremendous amount of energy locked deep inside the atom's nucleus, but the energy released by a single nucleus was too insignificant to consider. But atomic physicist Leo Szilard remembered reading the 1914 H.G. Wells novel The World Set Free, in which Wells predicted the development of the atomic bomb. In the book, he stated that the secret of the atomic bomb would be solved by a physicist in 1933. By chance, Szilard stumbled upon this book in 1932. Spurred on by the novel, in 1933, precisely as predicted by Wells some two decades earlier, he hit upon the idea of magnifying the power of a single atom via a chain reaction so that the energy of splitting a single uranium nucleus could be magnified by many trillions. Szilard then set into motion a series of key experiments and secret negotiations between Einstein and President Franklin Roosevelt that would lead to the Manhattan Project which built the atomic bomb. Time and again, we see that the study of the impossible has opened up entirely new vistas, pushing the boundaries of physics and chemistry 
and forcing scientists to redefine what they mean by impossible. As Sir William Osler once said, the philosophies of one age have become the absurdities of the next, and the foolishness of yesterday has become the wisdom of tomorrow. For example, cosmologist Stephen Hawking tried to prove that time travel was impossible by finding a new law of physics that would forbid it, which he called the chronology protection conjecture. Unfortunately, after many years of hard work, he was unable to prove this principle. In fact, to the contrary, physicists have now demonstrated that a law that prevents time travel is beyond our present-day mathematics. Today, because there is no law of physics preventing the existence of time machines, physicists have had to take their possibility very seriously. Already, one impossible technology is now proving to be possible, the notion of teleportation, at least at the level of atoms. Even a few years ago, physicists would have said that sending or beaming an object from one point to another violated the laws of quantum physics. Today, because of a recent breakthrough, physicists can teleport atoms across a room or photons under the Danube River. I still daydream about my lifelong love affair with the impossible and wonder when and if some of these impossibilities might enter the ranks of the everyday. You're the answer, son. Son.